Y'all turn to John 17. John chapter 17. I was reminded or thinking this morning about when I was in college, I took a class called Music Appreciation, and uh, Jesse was in that class. This is, of course, before we were married. I don't know if she took the class or she just came there because I was in there. Were you, you took the, you could, oh, okay, okay. But in this Music Appreciation class, this teacher was a very flamboyant, Lover of music. Is that one way to say it? All right. So, and one of the things he taught us in this Bible college music appreciation class was how to direct and keep time in music. And so we had to learn, you know, the 2-4 time, which is something like this. You know, you do this. Y'all seen choir directors do that stuff, you know. And we had to learn the 2-2 the time, which is the easiest, right, back and forth. 3-4 time, which is like this. How do I remember all this stuff? Because we just did it, and you just put it in your brain. And so I was in class going, what are we doing? <laughs> this is so silly. I will never use this in my entire life. I don't know what any of this stuff means. Fast forward five years down the road. I'm in a big church with 40 choir members, and I'm up here going. <laughs> and the whole time, I'm basically faking it. I don't really know what I'm doing. I mean, I'm just like, and then I do this, and they all stop singing. I feel like I have control, you know. And for a few years there, as a music minister, I, I directed choirs. You probably wouldn't know that looking at me. And, I, again, I knew enough to be dangerous. I knew enough just to kind of get by directing choirs. But we even did some big presentations, big, you know, hour-long shows or whatever. And I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I did, I did it because it was part of my role, but um, one reason I, I did not like it personally is I didn't know what I was doing, but the second reason is I always felt like we were just putting on a performance, and as a worship leader, music minister, whatever you want to call it, I've never felt like it's our job up here to put on a performance. I feel like it's our job to all worship the Lord together and be, and be one voice glorifying Him, as Romans says, and and so it was, it was not something I wanted to do. And as soon as I could get out of choir directing, I exited that job. Um, but one thing I, I remember about it was, of course, trying to get 20, 30, 40 different people who all have different ages, different backgrounds, different vocal abilities to somehow blend that all together. And so you're trying to find these men and say, all right, are you a bass or a tenor, right? Ladies, are you a soprano or an alto? And sometimes a bass, somebody, but... And so mixing together all these unique voices to form one good sound was always a challenge, but it, it, was, it was amazing, and this is one thing I did enjoy about it. By the time we would practice and practice and practice and finally perform that last show or whatever, or performance or service, it would feel good to know we, we did it. We worked it all together, we blended the voices together, and somehow in the end, it somehow sounded good, and we just hope you know, God got praise for it and glory for it, but... But just like in a choir, where you have to take all these different people with different backgrounds, different abilities, different ages, different preferences, and you have to blend them together, just in that same way, a church is a group of people from different backgrounds, different ages, different preferences, different demeanors, 
different desires and wants, yet a church must come together in unity to accomplish the goal that God has set out for us to accomplish, right? And so if we're going to work toward the common goal of being a light for Christ in this world, making disciples for Christ, we know that we're, we're going to be much better off doing that together than apart. And we also know that any differences we do have, we cannot let those things come between us, right? But we must focus on the similarities we have, which namely is Christ and our desire for Him. We must be one mind in purpose. We may not always be one mind in preference, right? But we must be one mind in purpose. We must come together with love for one another to glorify Christ and obey His great commission. If we take our eyes off of glorifying Christ and obeying His great commission, then we are failing, and we don't want to fail. In John 17, we conclude today the greatest prayer ever prayed. And if you want to, just to review you real quick, the first five verses were Jesus praying for himself. He said, Father, glorify your son, that your son might glorify you. In the middle part of this, he prayed specifically for his disciples. He said, Father, keep them, help them to persevere through the struggles they're about to face. And now we come to the, the last few verses. And so the question is, who will he pray for now? And what will he pray about? So let's read them. John 17, verse 20. If you're there, say word. So think about it. Who does he pray for? And what's he pray about? Neither pray I for these alone, which is the disciples, but for them which also shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Where in the Bible does Jesus pray for you, for me? Where is it in the Bible? John chapter 17, verse 20. Do you see it there? Who does he pray for? Not only just for the disciples, but for all those who will eventually believe through their word. And we know that is a group of people in the book of Acts as the disciples go out and share the word of Christ. But by connection, don't we also believe through the word of the disciples? Through the words they presented forward and, and, and led forward, yes. Jesus here broadens the scope of his prayer 
not only for his original disciples, but even for us as well. I love this. I love the idea Jesus knew these guys were going to struggle. That's why the middle of this prayer is for their perseverance and that God would keep them. God, Jesus knew they were going to struggle, but he also knew, he knew, didn't he, people would come to faith through Christ, in Christ through their ministry and their outreach and what they would do. And so he prayed with confidence. Jesus prayed with confidence. Father, I pray for all those who will believe through their word. He knew the word would go forth and produce salvation for many. So I think that's pretty clear in verse 20 about who he's praying for. I want to focus this message on what he prays for. And so the sermon in a sentence this morning, if you're taking notes, pretty simple. Jesus prays that we will be united. That his disciples would be united, that the early church would be united, and that God's people throughout all the ages would be one. Over and over again there, and you might want to underline it or make a note of it, you can see it uh, at least a couple of times there. Jesus says that they may be one, which is the title of the message, that they may be one. And to me, when Jesus makes this prayer, he highlights the fact that unity in the church is of supreme importance. And division in the church is something we must, be, we must watch out for, to not be divided, but instead be united. And throughout church history, you can read about it. It happens now. It happened back then. Division has tried to hinder the church. And what we've seen throughout individual churches and the church as a whole and certain denominations is that we can waste strength and time on all these contentious things and fail to do the most important things. How sad is it that a church, a group of people who says we are followers of the one true God of Jesus Christ, how sad is it when that group of people wastes their time or spends their time fighting and fussing and griping? And we've, we've told stories and of previous church experiences that some of us have where that's been the case. And, and I've told you guys, I can't spend much time on that anymore in my life. I reached a point in my life, I just can't spend too much time on division. To me, those thoughts must be redirected. Those negative thoughts we might have even toward fellow believers, must be redirected toward the main things God wants us to do. And Jason and I talk a lot about, you know, things going on in denominations around the country. And, and I think that's important to know what's going on in the landscape of Christianity as a whole. But when we do talk about those things, I just, I realize I can't give too much energy to it. I have to focus on me and my family and my church and our ministry more than what's out there, if that makes sense. Sometimes, uh, guys, men, sometimes my wife will fuss at me. Does that happen to y'all? And she'll start fussing, and I used to say, hey, babe, calm down. They love it when you say that. Just calm down. <laughs> but I have a new thing to say now. When she starts fussing, I'll say, love your energy. <laughs> nice energy. I love that energy. That doesn't go over well either. But here's my point. In the church, church, we need to repurpose our energy toward the great commission of making disciples and away from anything that would divide us. Repurpose our energy. Plainly in the text, look at verse 21. That they, I pray for them, 
that they may all be one. Verse 22, the last phrase there. That they may be one, even as we are one. I'm reminded here of Romans where it says to live peaceably with all. Like as best we can, if it be up to us, we should strive to live peaceable lives, especially with our fellow believers. And even when we do have differences or disagreements, disagreements, that we work together through love, through prayer, and through the things that are right. And this applies to all of us, and, and myself included. We should be very careful that we're never a part of dividing the church, but instead be a part of uniting the church. I've seen that so many times over the years, and sometimes it can be one person who will divide a group of people. And we don't want to be that person. I've seen it. I know some of you teachers can testify to this. You might have a classroom of 30 students. And if you get one bad student, it can ruin the whole class. Or one student who's having a bad day can ruin the whole class. Same thing can happen in a church. But never let that be you or me. Don't let that be us. Let us be those who unite around Christ and not divide. I'm going to give you five thoughts here on Jesus' prayer for our unity. You can jot these down in your notes. Um, We'll move to the text here. Notice first the pattern for unity. He says that they may all be one as thou, Father, (coughs) excuse me, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And again in verse 22, may they be one as we are one. So Jesus is speaking here of this Trinitarian unity, this perfect Father, Son, Holy Spirit, although he doesn't mention the Spirit here, we know they are one, this eternal Godhead, perfect communion and fellowship that God has always had in himself. And then he says that we might have that same type of unity. And my first note I wrote when I was studying this the other day was, is that even possible? Can we really have the same type of unity in us that God has within the Trinity? And I would say, probably not, but Jesus prayed that we would follow that pattern, didn't he? It's a pattern here. Follow that pattern that, that as we are one, he says, Father, that they may be one. And so, to me, the application here is that we might strive to follow the pattern of unity within the Godhead. That we might strive to follow the pattern of unity within the Godhead. And to do this, we must work together. And to do this, we must depend on God. The same God who brings us together is the same God who can keep us together. I know we usually use this text for marriage, don't we, where we say, what God has brought together, and it's meant for marriage, but what God has brought together, let no man put asunder, put apart. Well, we can also use that uh, by way of application for the church. We need to depend on the one who's brought us together to keep us together. So the pattern of unity is that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. Notice, secondly, the purpose of unity. The purpose of unity, I see that in the last part of verse 21, 
He says that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Christ desires that we be united so that the gospel would be better displayed and more clearly displayed. Christ knows that the church will be more effective in presenting the gospel as the church is effective in presenting a united front, a united body. Someone said years ago, the church is God's plan A for reaching people, and there is no plan B. And if the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B, then the best way the church is going to accomplish its goal, its mission, is to be together in doing so. We know that we can do so much more together than we can do apart. Think about it. If you hear of a church that is fussing and fighting, always having um, cliques and schism, you know, disagreements, do you really want to go and sit and listen to what that church has to say? Probably not, right? It, it is a way to bring shame, honestly, when we do this, or any church that does, that's fighting and fussing all the time, it's a really a way to, be, to bring shame on the name of Christ and to uh, just not, it's to distract from the, the cross and what we're here for. Gosh, I've been to denominational meetings that last hours upon hours to fight and fuss over some little minor thing, in my opinion. And yet the whole time you, they could have been praying or preaching or focusing on missions and they're fighting over something small. I've seen this in churches as well. What we should be quarreling about, church, is how can we better proclaim the gospel? Like, where, When are we going to argue about that? Like, we need to better proclaim the gospel to the world. Let's talk about it. What we should be squabbling over is this. Um, why don't we pray more together? We should be thinking about that. Why don't we pray more together? Do we desire to get together and pray? Pray to the Lord together? If we're going to fuss over something, let's pick that. How about this? We want to have a serious discussion about something? Let's sit down and say, how can we better make disciples? I've never had somebody come to my, you know, when I used to have an office back in the day, and knock on my office door or call me, hey, we need, to, we need to meet up and discuss how to better make disciples. That's a rare conversation for a pastor, but it should be a conversation that, that he gets to hear sometimes. It's usually somebody knocking on the door saying, I need to talk to you about this problem, right? There's an issue. There's a problem. When are we going to focus on those things? We do not want to get bogged down on minor or less significant things in a way that causes us to ignore the main thing. I told you the other day about the man who was in prison, got out of prison, got saved, joined the church, went to church faithfully for a year. After that year, he left the church. A pastor finally got up with him and said, hey, why did you leave the church? And he said, it didn't feel, it wasn't loving. He said a gang was a much better family than the church. And it's a pretty convicting thought. And it, it convicts me to say, what am I doing and what are we doing to help each other feel like we're family? And loving each other, being there for each other, um, so that we would have more unity. Number three, let's move on here to the power of unity. The power of unity is the glory of Christ. Verse 22, he says, And the glory which thou givest me, or gavest me, I have given to 
them. Jesus prays here that we, the church, would be marked by the glory which God gave him. And I listed up many things. I won't call them all out to you, but God certainly glorified Christ and gave glory to Christ in his person. Uh, in other words, God allowed his son to come here to do powerful works, right? Uh, to do powerful miracles, to teach powerfully, and then he most importantly glorified him at the cross and in the empty tomb. And for us, though, I, th- I think that glory that the Father gave the Son is given to us through the presence of Christ, the Word of Christ, the Spirit that Christ gave, through His leading in our, in our lives. And so how are we powered or enabled to stay united as a body of believers? We're united by the power of Christ, the one who has power to, to give. And so it happens at times in churches where someone might say, I just can't get along with this person or that person. I just can't understand what they're about. And here's where this glory of Christ, the power of who Christ is, the power of God in our lives can help us to overcome those differences and to say, even if I don't quite understand somebody, I can still love that person in Christ. You ever said this phrase before? I love you in the Lord. Right, or I love you as a fellow believer. We can still love each other that way. I think about it. One day when we leave this world, one day in eternal heaven, um, there are going to be a lot of people who are a lot different than us. There are going to be people in heaven who if they walked in here this morning, we would be like, I don't know about this person. Maybe we should stop the service. They're going to be all different people from all different tribes, tongues, nations. Different people, right? They're going to come together, and they're going to come together as one to worship Christ. Christ is the common theme that holds the church together. And if anything else becomes a common theme that holds the church together, that church is bound to fail and fall. There are some churches held together today simply by location. And people go to that church simply simply because they live in that community and maybe for no other reason. And maybe the community aspect has overshadowed the gospel aspect. I've seen it. And that kind of church sometimes brags and says, well, we just all get along. We all grew up together. We live together. And sometimes that can be a great thing, by the way, but sometimes it's not if Christ is not the center of it. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? I've never been. I'd like to go. Is it neat? Should I go sometime? I'm sure it's neat. But I was thinking about this. I've seen pictures. I've seen videos of it. Imagine a group of people standing at the Grand Canyon looking out, and I'm sure some some of y'all have done it. Beautiful. Imagine standing there, and you look out, and you're you're gazing at just God's creation, how beautiful it is, and you look down, and you see a whole group of people who are just sitting there playing on their phones. And you're going, what are y'all doing? Facebook can wait. Like, look at this. Look what God has made. Take in the beauty of this creation. And people are just like this. I'm sure it happens, by the way. I haven't been there, but I'm sure that happens. Put it down and look at what God has made. Here's my point. I think I have a note up there for you. When we are tempted to be divided, those divisions should crumble against the backdrop of of the glory of Christ. 
Christ is too big and too important for us to allow earthly squabblings to distract us from His greatness. We should not be staring down at distractions when the glory of Christ is before us. And maybe I, maybe sometimes we spend too much time thinking about only ourselves and not enough time thinking about the mission Christ has called us to. Behold the glory of Christ. and Let that be the fuel that brings us together and that fuels our mission. If we focus on the glory of Christ, we won't have time to squabble about minor things. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 to me is really just a summary of what he's already said. I and them, thou and me, that they may be perfect in one. Again, Christ shows these high standards of our unity. That the world may know that thou hast sent me. Again, that's the gospel displayed. And has loved them as thou hast loved me. Let's go to number four. Number four, I wanted number four to be the future of unity, but I needed another P word, so I'm going the past, present, and future of unity. But it fits, because if you look at verse 24, Jesus says, I will, also, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, now watch, here's the past. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And so I'm pointing here to the past being the sense of the per perfect Trinitarian unity. We know that the church in the past has had issues, but has also remained united in many ways. We see the disciples in Acts. We're going to see it at the end of the sermon. They were together, as we always hear, in one accord. I don't know how they fit in there, but they're together in one accord. Yet the disciples, if you read the book of Acts, they did have some times where they did not quite get along. And they had to have a council. They had to have a meeting. The churches had to have a meeting and say, let's work some of these things out. But even through all the issues, the church, the true church, has always found a way to get the job done, to work out their disagreements, and to move forward for the glory of God. That's the past. And the present is us trying to do that now. Us prayerfully uh, working together for Christ, but I want, to, I want you to notice the future. In verse 24, he says, I will that they will be with me. Here Jesus prays for ultimate unity that we would one day be with him. And knowing that our unity will always be skewed by sin on this earth, but we'll be perfected with him. There's a desire that Christ shows in his prayers. To me here, he's praying for our faith. And we know that now we have faith, and, and then we'll see face to face, right? And so we have this struggle on earth as we journey through our lives, but we trust in him. We know he's leading us, but we also, as 1 Corinthians says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, what? Face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully. Uh, I found another verse about the future. Written in Psalm 1611, David said, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 
So I want you to think about the, the imperfect unity we have now, but Christ is going to make it that one day we will experience the perfect unity. Number five, finally, the passion of unity. Look at the last two verses. In verses 25 and 26, he says, O righteous Father, the world has not known thee. We know this. The world does not know God. They neglect God. They, their heart is dead. But they have known, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love that you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. As Jesus concludes this prayer, and we think about the passion of unity, he prays that the love between he and the Father would fill the disciples, and would fill us, that our community of believers, our church, would be a family and would be characterized by loving each other. Being a part of a group of people who is willing to sacrifice, right, for one another. I've seen that in our church. People willing to give to help someone in need. Being willing to make that phone call or encourage someone who might need that encouragement in the church. In all this text, as I think about the passion of unity, Christ cares about our unity, doesn't he? That's why he prays for us. He cares about it. And if he cares enough about it to pray in this great prayer for it, then we must care about it as well. I've preached, by the way, I've preached sermons like this before, in a church where there was much division. Like, I'm not preaching that today because I feel like there's division. I've had before in the past been like, we're divided, let's find the right text to go with that division and preach on it. I'm preaching it today, why? Because we're going through John 17, and we're there. And so I'm not saying we have a lot of division in our church, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm encouraging us to think about it, and how we as individuals, as families, can make sure we're a part of the, the solution and not the problem to make sure we're part of focusing on the glory of Christ and not selfish ambitions. May the love of Christ, may the passion he discusses in verse 26, and he says that it might be in us, may that love Christ has put in us flow through us to one another. So, unity. It follows the pattern of the Trinity. It helps accomplish the purpose of the church. We're empowered by Christ to be one. We have a future hope of complete unity and we have the love of Christ in us to fuel the pursuit of a united church. Two applications. Number one, pray for unity. Pray for yourself, pray for your family, pray for our church, pray for your, your pastors that we would all strive for unity and not just unity for unity's sake, but unity around the glory of Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the great commission given by Christ. And not only pray for it, but participate in it. We all need to work together by being an active member of our church. Being here as much as you can when the doors are open that we might serve Him together. Participate fully. There really should be, except for extreme circumstances of sickness and things like that, 
there really should be no such thing as an inactive church member, should there? Participate actively in the church. Final thoughts. These disciples who were listening to Jesus pray, these disciples who he prayed for in the middle part of this text, they are about here in a few chapters to see him ascend into heaven and they're going to be standing there staring going, he's leaving us again. Where's he going? And then they're going to get a message, aren't they? Why are you gazing up there? The Christ who ascended will one day descend in the same manner. Go. And he would already told them in Acts 1.8, go. Go be witnesses. So these disciples go. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, I think you can look at this verse with me. It says, they were all with one accord. And it wasn't just these 11 disciples, by the way. There were others there as well, including Mary and, and some of the ladies as well. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to eating lunch together after church on Sunday. No. All these were devoted to meeting up at the ball fields for sports. No. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together. Skip ahead to Acts chapter 2, verse 44. In Acts 2, 44, Peter's preached the great sermon there, and it says, and many thousands were saved, and it says all who believed were together and had all things in common. Jump ahead to Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things were his own, but they had everything in common. And so you see this, why the early church explode with the power of God and the, the witnessing and the missions and all that they did. One part of it was when Christ saved these people, the Holy Spirit impacted these people, they united together. So much so that they would sell what they had and give to the ones who were poor. And the final verse we'll look at. Philippians 1.27 the Apostle Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I, personally, am thankful for the group of people that I get to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel with. Now, I don't say this uh, lightly. I've served with some great people in my 20 years of ministry, but I've never been more thankful to serve side by side with a group of people for the faith of the gospel than I am with Caledonia Baptist Church. May we strive even more, side by side, hand in hand, arm in arm, not for unity's sake, but for the sake of the glory of Christ. This completes our sermon. Um,
and get that stopped.